who have seen this before, it just seems like pretty commonplace, right? This doesn't seem like a radical text. This doesn't seem like that type of wording undoes hundreds of years of rabbinic culture, right? But these type of glosses, these type of comments, were seen as being tremendously radical, kind of threw, pushed aside all of the rabbinic culture that existed beforehand, and also allows this person who just wrote that very little paragraph, a little sentence, to be, and just I'm being deliberately anachronistic here, of all Ashkenazic rabbis, perhaps the one most studied to this day, with the exception of Rashi. So if you think about the rabbis that come from the great Ashkenazic lands, the Ramah is the one who studied the most, perhaps with the exception of Rashi. So that's the kind of thing that the Ramah is doing. Who is the Ramah? So this is to get to your answer to your question. He's a Polish rabbi who was born in 1520 in Krakow, Poland. And he dies in 1572 in Krakow as well. He comes from a rabbinic family. His father is known as Israel, hence the last name Israelis, which is a play on Israel. He studies in Lublin as a young man in the yeshiva of Rabbi Shalom Shachna, who is this very, very famous and kind of like, uh, there's a lot of hagiography about him in the Ashkenazic mythology, but Rabbi Shalom Shachna is the teacher of the Ramad, is the person who he studies from, we'll talk about him a little bit. He is the cousin of another famous rabbi who we'll talk about a little bit later, Rabbi Shlomo Luria, Marshal. He returns to Krakow around 1550, so he's around 30 years old, sets up a yeshiva. He comes from a very wealthy family, so he has many students. He becomes a dayan. He becomes one of the judges on the rabbinic courts. He also becomes, although it's a little unclear, but he becomes one of the communal representatives to the bigger communal organizations, meaning that in those times, in, in Poland at least, for sure, um, Jews didn't so much live under the Polish crown as they lived as tenants of certain barons. So they would not just organize their local communities for tax-providing purposes and for internal po political purposes, but they would, all the Jews in Poland or those areas would kind of join together, and that was called the Vad Arba Aratzot. I mean, it's very famous. It was the, and that dissolves in the year 1764. It's not entirely clear if the Ramah was part of the Vad Arba Aratzot because... It may have postdated him, but he is definitely on the communal representative of the Krakow community to a precursor to the Vadar Baratzot. He's a very, very important, famous rabbi. Um, he writes prolifically. So, for example, he writes on um, Halachap mostly. He writes responsa. He writes several codes, which we'll get to later. Um, he writes actually on philosophy and on astronomy, which are big topics, you know, in the early modern period, and he's heavily invested in them. And his most famous works, though, are the glosses that he writes on two books by Rav Yosef Karo, who's the author of the Shulchan Aruch. Um, and in the book, at least ostensibly, his purpose is to provide an Ashkenazic counterbalance to the Sephardic halacha that Rav Yosef Karo is trying to establish. So his goal is to kind of provide an Ashkenazic counterbalance, but at the same time, many Ashkenazic rabbis, or most Ashkenazic rabbis, see the Ramah kind of violating everything that Ashkenazic halacha is supposed to stand for. So this is who he is. This is the Ramah. What is his literary project? So for this, we have to go back a little bit to a different set of questions that exist probably a few hundred years before him. 
Uh, Rabbi Fox pointed out to me yesterday that one of the great or interesting things in Judaic history, Jewish history is that it seems that after great tragedies, one of the works, you know, great tragedies and dispersal, dispersal of communities and mass murders or mass deaths, one of the things that happens is the need to kind of constrict the community and unify the community. And what you have then is like these interesting moments. So, for example, after the destruction of the Second Temple, you have the codification of the Mishnah. After some of the Crusades or the, and the, some of the, you know, the, the forced conversions in Islamic lands, you have the beginning of codification in Sephardic lands and in parts of Ashkenazi countries. And specifically, after the expulsion from Spain, you have deliberately the writing of the most important of these codes, and that's the Shulchan Aruch. But a few hundred years beforehand, if you look here um, on the bottom of the page, it says, Hakdama liyad hachazakal Rambam, and the English is in the next page. This is the Rambam's Moshe ben Maimon, the great, probably, Maimonides, um, writing why he is compiling the, his code of halacha. Okay, so Rambam here in the 1100s is, is, is trying to answer why he all of a sudden is writing a unified code of halacha. And remember, Maimonides' um, attempt to codify the halacha is the most far-reaching, it is the most ambitious, and it's also probably the most controversial of these codes ever written. It's the most far-reaching because for Maimonides, what he attempts to do is, as opposed to the halacha that is immediately relevant to people's lives, Maimonides is going to write about every halacha that appears in the Talmud, Midrashim, etc., whether it is immediately relevant or not. So, in addition to the questions of whether or not this piece of meat is kosher, or what time Shabbos starts, or, you know, where are you supposed to tear Kriya when a relative dies, the Rambam is going to write about the laws of the Messiah, the laws of the Temple, who's ritually pure and impure, laws that don't seem, on the face of it, to have any real practical relevance at all. And he goes about writing his, that's why it's the most far-reaching, also why it's the most ambitious. Now, the reason why it's the most controversial will be seen in his introduction. So everybody, let's look inside and read. He says as follows. In our time, severe troubles come one after another. This is the second page. Does everybody have this? Second page. The Hebrew is there if you want to follow in the Hebrew. And all are in distress. The wisdom of our sages has disappeared, and the understanding of our discerning men is hidden. Thus, the commentaries, the responses to question, and the settled laws that the Gaonim wrote, which at once seemed clear, have in our times become hard to understand, so that only a few properly understand them. And one hardly needs to mention the Talmud itself, the Babylonian Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud, the Sifra, the Sifri, and the Tosefot, which all require a broad mind, a wise soul, and considerable time before one can correctly know from them what is forbidden or permitted and the other rules of the Torah. For this reason, I, Moshe, son of Rabbi Maimon the Sephardi, found that the current situation is unbearable. Sephardi here means just from Spain, right? His family is originally from Spain. That's what it means, not, not like, you know... And so rely on the help of the rock, blessed be he. I intently study all these books, for I saw fit to write what can be determined from all of these works in regard to what is forbidden and permitted, and unclean and clean, and the other rules of the Torah. Everything in clear language and terse style, so the whole oral law become thoroughly known to all, without bringing problems and solutions or differences of view, but rather clear, convincing, and correct statements in accordance with the law drawn from all these works and commentaries that have appeared from our time, from, uh, from the time of our holy teacher, Moses, to the present. 
This is so that all the rules should be accessible to the small and to the great in the rules of each and every commandment and in the rules of the legislations of the sages and prophets. In short, so that a person should need no other work in the world in the rules of any laws of Israel, but that this work will collect the entire oral law, including the positive legislations, the customs, the negative legislations, enacted from time Moses, our teacher, until the writing of the Talmud, as the Gaonim interpreted for us and all the works commentary they wrote after. Now, what... What would you say, just reading that last paragraph, are both the positives and the negatives of the project that the Rambam's trying to do? What are the positives? He wants to help people understand it. Right, he wants people to help people understand it. Remember that, like, for those of us who study Talmud, right, it is exceptionally unclear, just as a very, very introductory thing, it is exceptionally unclear, just given a set of Talmud, where to find anything. I'll just give you one example. If you know the answer, just don't raise your hand. If I wanted, I have a son. So if I wanted to uh, know how to, prop, oh, I have a son who was born uh, Saturday, Friday afternoon, um, and it was a cesarean section. So if I wanted to know if the bris should be on Shabbos or Sunday, it was on Sunday, which tractate in the Talmud would I look in? Right, you would think, well, right. There's, well, so it's in Shabbos. All the rules of oh, okay. Brit, no, but all the rules of Brit Milah, all the lo- laws that have to do with the bris, are in Masechet Shabbat. Um, if I want to know, I'll give you one quick example. Um, I have a key in my apartment, and the light turns on automatically when I open it up. It's like a hotel. So the question is, can I use that on Shabbos? Because that's the Shabbos key, which is a little bit of a problem. Where would I find the answer to this question? So the answer to that is found in the beginning of Masechet Ketuvot, which deals with marriage and, right the, right, the laws of marriage, right? And the point is, is this, we could go on and on for two hours about all the odd places in the Talmud where you find the law, the Masechet Moed Katan, which deals with Chol HaMoed, is where you find the laws of mourning, right? There are, so it's exceptionally unclear for someone who wants to know what the Halakha is, where to look. So the first thing that the Rambam does is organizes it topically. So for the Rambam, it's actually exceptionally clear. All you need to do is have a copy of the Mishnah Torah in front of you, and within a few, few minutes or hours, you can pretty much find whatever you need. Okay, there's a couple of little nuances. But generally speaking, it's very easily organized, very topical, so a person can actually find out what the halacha is. What's the problem with what the Rambam was saying? You said you, that a person should need no other work. Right. Right. He is the supreme arbiter of all matters in law. So this is one of, as we'll see in a minute, this is one of the major, major oppositions to the Rambam's work. And this is already, I mean, this is a a much bigger topic for another time. But one of the major oppositions to the Rambam's code is that who makes you the final arbiter of all things, right? And by the way, that's what happens. Whenever you codify and write in a a terse style, right, you're going to... But there's one other very important point that the Rambam made that is a tremendous, tremendous source of dispute up until today. Well, doesn't he seem to imply that he's not going to, that contrary to the, to the Talmud, he's not going to have majority and minority opinions? It's going to be... And, and, and even more problematic? It's going to be whatever he says. Good, it's going to be whatever he says. And what does he not do? One of the great, I mean, one of the great frustrations of using the Mishnah yeah? He doesn't cite his sources. He never cites his sources. If you have a printed Mishnah Torah, the only time that they cite sources is later on. As a matter of fact, people made a lot of money just reprinting the Mishnah Torah. This was, I mean, again, the history of the printing press we'll talk about, or Hebrew printing we'll talk about in a little bit, but people made money, a lot of money, just 
printing editions of the Mishnah Torah with the sources that the Rambam doesn't refuses to cite. So the opposition to the Rambam was basically along these two lines. And if you turn the page um, to those that little Hebrew bold and italicized paragraph, um, this is a rabbi named Rabbeinu Avraham ben David, known in the yeshivas as the Ravad or the Ravid. He's a French rabbi who is a generation after the Rambam. And he writes as follows, and I'll translate along. You see where it says Aleph Aleph there, which is Amar Avraham. He's talking. His name is Avraham. He writes, Savar litakein velotikein ki hu azav derech kol hanachabrim asher hayulafanov. He said he, the Rambam thought he was going to fix things. But he didn't fix anything, he says. Now, the Ravid, by the way, is one of the most harsh critics of the Rambam. He writes, and probably, not the Rambam, anyone he disagrees with, he probably is the most harsh and nasty rabbinic writer in the history of rabbinic writing. I mean, he'll say this is stupidity. And, I mean, we had, when I was in yeshiva once, we used to have like a collection of the top ten insults uh, that the Ravid had for other rabbis. And, and, and it doesn't, the fact that the Rambam, I mean, the Rambam is his, his main target. Um, Kihem, second line, they... They would bring proofs for what they said. And they would write what they said in the name of who said it. And there was a great benefit to citing your sources and explaining yourself. Why? Sometimes a dayan, a judge, or a rabbi, has to make a decision. And when the decision is based on ignorance, because they don't know that someone disagrees with them, so they can't ever formulate a proper decision. Right? If I only have the Rambam in front of me, so I can know what the halacha is, except if there is a dissenting opinion, that may make more sense. And he continues, now, He says, I have no reason to know why I should possibly rely on this man, the Rambam. He says, if he's greater than me, okay, maybe I should agree with him, but maybe I'm greater than he is. Who's he? How do I know? What kind of, not, what kind of mishigas is this? That you, you know, you, I, I decide, okay, you decide. Now, again, we don't talk like this today. Oh, the Holy Rambam, right? But again, yeah, but this is, this is uh, well, we do, we do, but okay. And he says, he continues, V'od, and further, He said, he made a decision. Why should I go with his decision? The Rambam decided that this opinion is correct. Why does that compel me to follow his, his, his mindset? So this is the famous, famous argument of the Ravid or the Ravad against the Rambam's project. Now, it's interesting to note, it's not a problem with codes per se, right? I mean, theoretically, you could write a code and the Ravid wouldn't have a problem with it as long as you would make sure that you kind of had a balanced code, right? You could, you could abbreviate the Talmud without necessarily, you know, sticking only one side, as long as you kind of cited your, your sources and kind of explained the very basics of what the Machloket is about, right? And so for the Ravid, Ravad, the problem here, and this is really a problem in general, is not per se with writing shorthand codes and shorthand volumes. What the problem is, is with the specific version that the Ramam gave. The no citations... Right, the making of the final decision, 
without justifying that final decision. Now, if you look in the next source, this is a, a very famous article written by Lewis Ginsburg called The Codification of Jewish Law in the volumes called On Jewish Law and Law. Um, I think it's available on Google Books. I'm not sure I stole my father-in-law's copy, so uh, if you have a father-in-law who has it and you want to steal it from him. Anyway, so um, he says as follows. Moreover, the Tosafists, untrained in all disciplines other than the Talmud, were little fitted to systemize complicated subjects. Right, that's another important point, right? I mean, the Rambam is, right, is, is, is heavily invested in the, a certain type of Arabic legal thinking, which does teach them how to write and conceptualize things in very concise, precise terms. So, like to argue, in Eastern Europe, they didn't have a lot of writing classes. You know, they didn't have, like, you know, freshman writing one, freshman writing two in Eastern Europe. You can tell, I mean, it depends on the time period and the writer, but some of them are almost completely incoherent. Um... In northern France, the home of the Tosafists, it is true the need of a guide for practical purposes was often felt. The Tosafists, however, did not consider the study of the Talmud merely a means to the end of regulating religious life. For them, it was an end in itself. And the explanation and exposition of the Talmud were of primary importance, while the reduction of halakha to norms was merely secondary. This is, by the way, another point. You'll notice that there's a certain thrust in what the Rambam was saying, which is, look, the whole point of the Talmud is to regulate norms. The whole point of the Talmud is to regulate behavior. Right, so if that's the whole point of the Talmud, so let's just kind of skip the, all the back and forth, this one says this, and get to the bottom line behavior. And elsewhere, actually, the Rambam writes in a very, very controversial passage that the greatness of his Mishnah Torah is that you don't have to worry about learning halakha anymore. You could study philosophy because if you ever you know, need to know if the food's trafe or not, you just look there and then get back to Aristotle and Plato. Didn't sit too well either. Although Rabbeinu Gershon ben Yuda the founder of Talmudic studies in France and Germany in the beginning of the 11th century is known to have written a compendium on an important subject of criminal law, and his pupil, Judah Cohen, wrote a codex on jurisprudence. Yet the true spirit of this school appears in Rashi and the Tosavists, who devoted themselves to the explanation of the Talmud. Okay. And this was the way, in many ways, Ashkenazic Jewry. First of all, their, their focus was on the study of the Talmud per se, as opposed to reducing it to norms. And they were suspicious of the attempt to codify everything into kind of an exact, final, precise form. Now, what's interesting is they did produce important manuals of halakha, but the manuals they produce of halakha are very shorthand. They're terse. They don't necessarily really explain everything. And they're written in a way that oftentimes is very, very difficult and very, very confusing. I'll give you one example because it's going to come up later, so just so you should be aware. There is a work that is of vital importance to understanding halakha and understanding Ashkenazic halakha called Sha'are Dura. Sha'are Dura is a work written in the 1300s, so it's right after this time period. It's written by Rabbi Yitzhak ben Rabbi Meir Halevi, who was a student of the famous Maharam of Rutenberg. Um, he lives in Duren in Germany, and he writes on the topic of what we call Isur Veheter, right? Kosher, not kosher, right? That's the main subject that occupied rabbis um, still today. My smicha from Yeshiva University is predominantly in the laws of kosher meat, not kosher meat, salting meat, soaking meat, etc. And that is what the Shari Dura had. As you'll see later on, the Shari Dura is now written or handwritten in the 1300s. And the study of halacha in Ashkenazic Yeshivot is taking your version or your Yeshiva's copy of the Shari Dura with the notes that your teacher put on that, studying your teacher's notes and your teacher's version of that, and then passing that version on 
to the next generation. So in a certain sense, it's a very closed circle, right? It's highly localized, as we'll see. The Share Dura that you will have in one town and another are completely different. Because what they are is a, the version that's been copied over and over and over again. And at a certain point, they become unrecognizable one from the other. It also is a very close circle of who can possess the knowledge and who can't. Right? Because if you think about it, um, if you're not part of a certain culture, of a certain yeshiva, a certain group, it's almost impossible to figure out what's going on. Right? We've seen texts. We've all looked at texts where if you're not like, amongst the initiated, it becomes almost impossible to figure out what this text is talking about. Yeah. Well, they did stay, a lot of them stayed very, very localized, but, spending, but depending on the yeshiva you learned in, that would be the version that you've kind of learned. I mean, this actually, you can still see this a little bit today. Um, if you speak to guys um, who go to different yeshivot, you know, their way of like what's a question and what's an answer, who is important, who's not important, what's considered a normative idea and not a normative idea can be completely different because they have their own canon that the yeshiva fixes. Well, it was high. It was very. It was highly localized. So usually, you would take you know someone from a yeshiva that was you know a, a, a kindred spirit to the one where you know your family you know the, the, the yeshiva that he went. I mean, it's similar to uh, a synagogue today that will only take a rabbi from a certain yeshiva, right? You know, what I mean, like that that kind of thing. You know, what I mean, where you you have the kindred spirits and therefore they'll have their own their own versions. Um, and this goes on up until uh, up until the 1500s. Okay, this goes on up until the 1500s uh, as far as how people learn and how knowledge is disseminated. Now, already in the middle of the 1400s, you have the introduction of the printing press. And the printing press is both tremendously important for the dissemination of Jewish knowledge, of all knowledge. I think that Time Magazine had, had a, a thing like a, around 1999 or 2000. They said, who is the man of the millennium? And it was Johannes Gutenberg who pr- created the printing press. Okay, they said the single most important figure from year 1000 to 2000 was Johannes Gutenberg because no human being, he said, has done more for the production of Jewish knowledge, of, not Jewish, of, of world knowledge than Johannes Gutenberg. And it's interesting actually to note that if you get one of the classic editions of the Mishnah, which has the Yachin and Boaz and the, the classic commentaries of the Mishnah, I forgot who it is. If you email me, I'll try to find the exact citation. But one of the real, the classic commentaries on the Mishnah, I think it's Yachin Boaz actually himself, says that Johannes Gutenberg should be considered one of the Hasidei Umot Ha'olam. He's one of the righteous Gentiles. You know, like when you go to Yad Vashem, they have like Raul Wallenberg, all the righteous. So Johannes Gutenberg, because of what he's done for the dissemination of knowledge, specifically Torah knowledge, should be considered one of the righteous Gentiles. He's a place in the world to come. And that's, I mean, in a certain sense, it's true. I mean, think, think about, you know, what the advent of the printing press meant, and especially what the advent of the printing press meant, the dissemination of Jewish knowledge and Jewish texts, right? right? I and mean, again, just to go back to something that, um, that Rachel was talking about earlier, um, we have these keynote that we say on Tisha B'Av for the burning of 127 carts of the Talmud, right? Now, it's not merely that it's offensive that the book is being burnt. 
Right, think about it. Like, if somebody would burn 127 cartloads of the Talmud on, on 65th Street, right? The thing that would bother us the most is the fact that our holy work is being burned, right? But in a world where everything is a manuscript, burning 127 cartloads of Talmud means that people will not learn Torah for the next 150 years. Or 100 years, whatever it is. You're not, you can't just get one, right? If I burn 127 cartloads of Talmud, so I'll go to Borough Park and buy another 127. In those days, it was impossible. And so again, people didn't own really books until like en masse, and they weren't cheap enough until the 1800s. But it did allow yeshivas and students, wealthy people, synagogues, right, to have many more volumes available to them than were ever available in the past. But on the other hand, there is a danger, especially for a traditional culture. Because what happens when you have the, the, the democratization of knowledge Diversity. It's available to anyone. You know, one of the, uh, the things I always tell my students is, is that you, the, uh, one of the points that people miss, you, if anyone was around the summer, you saw they had this huge Siam Hashas in Giant Stadium, right? Which, is, uh, which was a tr- real triumph of a certain ultra-Orthodox Haredi way of life, if you looked at what was going on, on the stage. But at the same time, remember that the publication of the Shahenstein Talmud allows you know, a, not Jewish, a non-Jewish man or woman in Texas to be the same Talmud Chacham as a Rosh Hashiva in Flatbush. Right, exactly. Right, everyone, right. So the point is, is, is you theoretically, with the advent of the Shadenstein Talmud, right, it democratizes so much that what, you know, the, the ability to become a Talmud scholar of the hot first rank is available to almost anyone. And I just, one other just interesting point, and I just, I, just to bear in mind for the next few years, um, there was, in, in like the classic yeshivas, they have a, when they learn, you know, the yeshivish gemaras, like a Ketuvot or Baba Metziah, whatever it is. So they have what they call the yeshivish arayid. Yeshivish arayid means like this is what, in the yeshivas, they say, these are the issues on this page. And there are all these books that come out about it, right? I would bet that in the next 50 years, just, that will be replaced with the art scroll footnotes. Meaning, what will be the arbiter of what is a valid question or valid discussion on any Talmudic topic? Not what was said in the great yeshivas of Eastern Europe, but what the editors of Art Scroll consider to be significant, because that is the knowledge base that's open to people, right? So th- right, right. So that's, that's part of the problems of, you know, this opening and this democratization of knowledge. So if you look ahead, and I will just explain to you what we have in front of you, um, um, just, just if you turn the page for a minute, just where it says Elizabeth Eisenstein, The Printing Press is an Ag- Agent of Change, Volume 1. Th- this is a, a very important book written in 1979, two volumes, and uh, they have it in really good libraries. So those of you who are still college students, Ashrechem, that you can get a copy of this easily in your university library. Um, so she writes the following, and this is just an interesting little point as far as how, how the printing press was received in Germany, especially if you remember that this is the, the age of the Reformation. So it says, moreover, the reformers were aware that the printing press was useful to their cause, and they acknowledged its importance in their writings. The theme of printing is proof of spiritual and cultural superiority. First sounded by Rome in its crusade against the literate Turks, was taken over by German humanists trying to counter Italian claims. Gutenberg had already joined Arminius as a native cultural hero before he gained added stature for providing Lutheran preachers and princes and knights with their most effective weapon in their gallant struggle against popes. Luther himself described printing as God's highest and extremest act of grace whereby the business of the gospel is driven forward. And if you look at the next paragraph, 
From Luther on, the sense of a special blessing conferred on the German nation was associated with Gutenberg's invention, which emancipated the Germans from bondage to Rome and brought the light of true religion to a God-fearing people. The mid-century German historian Johann Sleiden developed the theme in his address to the Estates of Empire of 1542, a polemic which was republished more than once. As if to offer proof that God has chosen us to accomplish a special mission, there was invented in our land a marvelous new and subtle art, the art of printing. This opened German eyes even as now bringing enlightenment to other countries. Each man became eager for knowledge, not without a feeling a sense of amazement at his former blindness. Now, that same impulse, obviously there's, okay, obviously the Reformation becomes, you know, is, is more significant in world history, but that same impulse, I mean, right, I, I think that Luther's 95 theses were written in Latin, right? but they were disseminated in German via the printing press. Right? The Reformation happens in many ways. I mean, the, the whole world changes because of the fact that Germans had printing presses available to them. You could disseminate in, million, in all these different languages. So the question I want to deal with specifically is what happens in Ashkenazi culture when all of a sudden these printed works are available and specifically when someone, namely the Ramah who we spoke about earlier, finds it fitting or suitable to kind of compose his own codes that, according to him, supplant all the old codes and democratize halakha in some sort of pan-Ashkenazic way. Right, we saw earlier, he said, bimedinot elu, right, in these countries, right? So it takes, it's no longer localized, right? It's no longer specific. It's no longer only in the hands of the elite, right? What happens to halakha and to Ashkenazic self-image um, as a result of this process. And by the way, just an interesting point, you can go back and look. The last of the four citations of the Shulchan that I gave you on the first page, the Ramah makes mention of the word Ashkenaz. So interestingly enough, I did a little search on the computer. The phrase bimedinot elu, which means in our lands, appears 109 times in the Shulchan in the name of the Ramah. And the f- word Ashkenaz appears 10 times. Which means, at least, if Ashkenaz is merely tr- translated as Germany, usually, right? It means that perhaps Medinot Elu and Ashkenaz are not the same thing. Um, so that's the last question we're going to deal with. What do those two phrases mean? And their vital importance, I mean, again, like I said earlier, I assume, I, not making too bold an assumption, that most of the people in this room self-identify as Ashkenazic. I would dare say we're probably, if in this room, probably from 10 or 15 or 20 different countries. My family itself is from like five different countries, right? Um, and we have very few, if, if no, local minhagim. We just have this generic sense of being Ashkenazic. We eat kogel and gefilte fish, and my grandparents spoke Yiddish, right? Um, but it doesn't necessarily translate, you know, to, to our practice. So we're going to take a little bit of time now. Let me just explain to you what you have in front of you so we can kind of like guide the study for the next 40, 45 minutes or so. Um, there is uh, a ar- very famous article by Isidore Tversky who was at Harvard um, about the Shulchan Aruch. And I just, if you want to just um, kind of briefly read through that, you don't need to fetch your finger too much. All that's there to do is to kind of give you a background to what the Shulchan Aruch itself is. Okay, what is the Shulchan Aruch that the Ramah is commenting on? So you see where it says, Isidore Tversky, the Shulchan Aruch, Enduring Code of Jewish Law. That's that. Um, immediately after, you have that quote from Elizabeth Eisenstein. We have, now this says, Shalot Vichuvot Harama. Now this is actually, just as an important footnote, this has nothing to do with the Ramah. 
So you say to me, how could it possibly have nothing to do with Ramah? It says the responsa of the Ramah. So if you look here in the introduction to the Ziv edition, which is like the authoritative version, he says this, this has, it was published there because it's generally part of that culture that the Ramah lived in. He himself has absolutely nothing to do with this, as you will see. But that's a very important source because it explains why his teacher, the Ramah's teacher, the great Rav Shalom Shachno, and Rav Shalom Shachno's teacher, the great Rav Yaakov Pollock, who are these very important seminal figures in the history of Ashkenazic halacha, especially in the early modern period, never wrote anything down. Refused, as a matter of fact. They never published anything. Not only did they never publish anything, they make an amazing claim here. When you would send a question to a rabbi, so say you would ask me an interesting halacha question, generally what the rabbi would do was write two copies, one sent back to the, to the, to the questioner, and one that he would seal with his seal for his records. They wouldn't even produce their own copies of the questions they got. They would send it out to the person, and then it would just disappear into the other. If they kept it, they kept it. If not, not. So the question is, why is that? What's the impulse in this high Ashkenazic rabbinic culture to refuse to write anything? Um, and you'll see there, Achan and Reiner deals with it a little bit. And then you could see the next page is the Ramaz introduction himself to his Torah Chata. Torah Chata, as you'll see, is a work that the Ramah wrote to supplant the Sharei Dura. Okay, it's the, it's, he writes this before he writes his commentary on the Shulchan Aruch. But in his introduction to Torah Chata, he explains why he is writing a book to supplant the Shari Dura. Why is it that I now need to produce a new work that is going to undo, to, theoretically, everything that has been done until now? What impulse drives him? So Torah Chata, we said a little earlier, but the Shari Dura we mentioned is this book about kosher, not kosher, etc. Torah Chata is the Ramah's attempt to write a new version, a better version of that, that will kind of supplant it and push aside that earlier work. Now, the, and again, some of the similar objections that you're going to hear in the Rambam are going to be heard here, only they're going to be in a much harsher form. And the next piece, and then we'll see if you get through this, you could, let me just tell you what that is. It says here, Rav Chaim ben Metzal of Friedberg, Introduction to Vikuach Mayim Chaim. I'll t- I, just, I really want to tell you about this a little bit before we get started. Rav Chaim ben Metzal of Friedberg is the brother of the famous Maharal of Prague. So Maharal of Prague is known primarily for his contributions in Jewish thought. And Rechaim ben Metzalel is his brother. Now, this is a very important book, and I'll tell you why it's so important. He found the Torah Chatat and the whole attempt at codifying halacha, the way the Ramah was doing it, to be grossly objectionable and violently objectionable. He said this is, this is a total disaster and a complete break with tradition. And he writes a book, Vikuach, which is like a, a disputation, Mayim Chaim, of the living waters. And the whole point of the book is to disagree with the Ramah and to reestablish the old Ashkenazic practice and way of doing things. Now, what's specifically important about this is the following. In the beginning of the book, he writes an introduction, a very, very famous introduction, with 13 points about why he disagrees with the Ramah. And he is very, very harsh in his language. And even when he tries to be kind, he's not kind. This work is published, I think, for the first time about 100 years later, I think 1703, in Amsterdam. 
After it's published for the first time in 1703 in Amsterdam, it is not republished for 250 years. Meaning what was a living issue and a vitally important issue at the, right around the time of the codification of the Shulchan Aruch is deliberately suppressed immediately after it's published. I'll give you one example. I have in front of me here this old edition of the Torah Chata which is the photo offset. I went to the YU library and I got all the old versions they have. And in it, they will have the Vikuach Mayim Chaim. They will have the specific issues he has with each halacha, but they republished it every time without the introduction. They refused to publish his introduction because it was seen as kind of too harsh and too unkind and too undoing of what the Ramah was trying to do. So, and you'll see why. I mean, it's not really hard to see why. But I did, in this packet that I gave you, the Hebrew ones. So in the Hebrew ones, the Rashi script is the Ramah's introduction to the Torah Chata. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And then I republished for you, the first time it appears is in 1949 in uh, Chernikovsky's Told Out of Postkin. For those of you who are familiar with the Hebrew, whatever, it is really amazing to read. And it's really amazing to read because this figure of the Ramah, who we said we study every single day, to see the vitriol and the controversy that this project engendered is amazing. Right? It's, we take it for granted today. This is just what it is. But in those days, it was seen as an offensive and a total destruction of everything that had come beforehand. So I reprinted it for you because the truth is it's rarely reprinted. Now I think this new version of Torah Chata that they came out with like four or five years ago reprinted it for the first time. But if you imagine that in the standard versions, it hadn't been published for 300 years. It's amazing, right? So if you can get through that in the next little while, again, if you want to read the Hebrew, the English, I put both of them on the page to kind of try to figure out what are the issues. Why is the Ramah doing what he does? Why does the Ramah feel compelled to write what he does? And what are the specific oppositions that, that many of his contemporaries, his cousins, his friends from yeshiva, right? these guys all, I mean, it was not a big, big world there. The people who were the Polish Talmudic scholars found this to be so problematic and so objectionable. And at the end, if you have time, you can skip ahead, we'll deal with the second question, which is, who is, this, who is the Ramah's intended audience? When he's writing this book, who does he intend to actually reach? That also is a source of tremendous controversy and one of the great, as we'll see, ironies of the history of rabbinics that it may be, in fact, that the people who made the decision of who practices what were not the rabbis, but the publishers who were trying to drive up sales. Right, so if I were to write a book that said anyone who is bald, hyperactive, and doesn't sleep enough, don't read this book. So I'm not going to read the book. But if it says this is for everyone, including people who are bald, so then I would you know, I'd buy it. Hey, it's for me, right? I mean, exactly right, yeah. Right. But the point is, is we'll see that the, um, it may be the publishers themselves who are the driving force behind this pan-Ashkenaz world that we live in and that we continue to live in today. It may be that you know, the, the death of local custom, the death of local rabbinical authority is not so much a project of the great scholars that wrote it, but the publishers trying to sell 20 more copies in Austria or 30 more copies in Berlin than they would have otherwise. So take the next, I guess, 40 minutes or so. Try to get through some of these sources. There's English and Hebrew if you want to go. The Hebrew stuff is just more extensive. But if you, and we'll come back in about, I'd say, 5.10.2 or 5.2. Okay?
Um, I think we should start just because we should uh, we should end on time. So, uh, and on time, I mean five minutes early, so we could do the evaluations. But guys, it, don't worry. It's not like a car dealer where if I don't get all tens, they fire me. So, yeah. Anyway. Um, Okay, so uh, any qu questions or comments before we get started on the actual content? Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering, this is a, a procedural kind of question, but the, um, you know, every volume of the Talmud, or, or, or the contemporary volumes, you know, of the Talmud, have a page at the beginning that, you know, navigates you through what's, all, what's in the margins and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. Is that um, a result of printing because it was possible to do that? Or, or manuscripts of the no, that's that's a result. If, if so, the question is the question is 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 the 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 actual page of Talmud that we have in front of us. That is a, a, a I mean, if if there was um, there was an exhibit Yeshiva University did, I'm going to guess like six or seven years ago, called the printing of the Talmud. Mm -hmm. A lot of the stuff is online, and they put out a very good volume about it. So if you look it up, it's called the printing of the Talmud from something to something, I don't remember exactly the name, that will navigate you through that whole, that whole process of how it was printed, when it was printed, um, what the decisions were of what would be on the page, what wouldn't be on the page, um, and problems of that, you know, toast vote. Is that an advent of printing? Yeah, 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 yeah. This is, the manuscripts were of specific works. You know, Talmud had its, I mean, if you look there, they have, they'll show you what the old manuscripts look like. Um, so you had the manuscripts of each each work. Look, I mean, even to, even with the advent of printing, we take it for granted. For example, that when you buy a volume of the Talmud, a regular volume of the Talmud, the riff is in the back, which is a, a compendium of halacha, uh, African compendium of halacha around the year 1100. So we take it for granted that most volumes of the Talmud would have it. I have a set of Talmud at home that was my great grandfather's. My great grandfather, who I'm named after, was also a rabbi. And his was published in a completely different volume. So we have just his riff with his beard hairs when he would, you know, in, at, at my parents' house. I don't have it at home. I don't have room. Just move back to Manhattan, so I have no room. But, um, yeah, so that, all this, but if you look there, if anyone's interested, it's actually real. I mean, all these are vitally important because, you know, what kind of knowledge we take for granted today or has been disseminated, right, wasn't always the case. Um, and so the, uh, we'll get to, I'll get to a specific example towards the end. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So okay, so that's very good. Let's let's turn to that because that becomes actually very important. Let's turn to that Isidore Tversky thing. Agur was, and we have it here somewhere, um, a very very terse and a very very uh, sparse compendium of halacha that predates the Shulchan Aruch. Um, and when the Shulchan Aruch writes, when Rav Yosef Karo writes, I shouldn't say that, when Rav Yosef Karo writes what he's going to do, his foil, at least in one place, is the Agur. So before we go any further, let me explain what I'm saying. Rav Yosef Karo, who is the author of the Shulchan Aruch, is, again, also one of the most important figures, you know, in the history of Jewish literacy. His family is from Spain, they are expelled from Spain. He winds up in Turkey and then settles in Tzfat. Um, he is very invested in the worlds of both legal thought and mysticism. 
um, one of the most more interesting volumes you will pick up, and it's still printed today, um, is a book called Magid Mesharim, which is a story, a, a, a compendium of conversations that an angel had with Rav Yosef Karo that would visit him at night, and what the angel told him to do. This is, uh, you can buy it in any farm store. Um, we don't usually have shiurim on it here, or, uh, do we? No. No, 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 okay. So it's called Magid Mesharim, and if you get, um, if you really want to just see the English version of that, the, um, there was a, 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 an academic named uh, Wablowski, R.J. Wablowski, I think, who has a fine book called Joseph Caro, Lawyer and Mystic, and the whole second half, or the first half, one and a half of the book is on his discussions with this angel that used to come visit him at night. Um, and again, university students, Ashrechem, because it's pretty much only available in university libraries now. Anyway, so he, he compiled, and he, he, he's a very prolific writer. He writes, the Magime Sharm is just, you know, just conversations, but he writes a commentary on the Mishnah Torah, actually the Rambam's Mishnah Torah, called Kesef Mishnah, a very, very important commentary. And his greatest work, actually, is not the Shulchan Aruch. Okay? His greatest work, by far, is not the Shulchan Aruch. His greatest work is something called the Beit Yosef, which he made reference to in the article. Tversky makes reference to in the article. What Beit Yosef is, is the following. We, there was a medieval work written in the 1300s called the Tur, the Arba Turim, which is a compendium of halacha, only practical. That's the, and what he does in his Beit Yosef is basically tells you the entire history of discussion of any given halacha from the Talmud to the 1500s. Okay, the Beit Yosef is, the, is his greatest work because what he did was, and he, to get the, it wasn't easy to get the manuscripts, it wasn't easy to go to the libraries, but what he did was any time you had any halacha, he tells you from the times of the Talmud, even from the Chumash, up until the 1500s, every discussion that was had on this given topic. The goal was to give you the broadest overview of the halacha that was possible. When you study today, when you study to be a rabbi, you start with the Beit Yosef because the Beit Yosef still, to this day, is the greatest of all of these works. It took him 20 years or 32 years something to write the Beit Yosef. It was a lifelong project. And what he does after the fact is then write the Shulchan Aruch. Now, what is the impulse to write the Shulchan Aruch? Well, a large part of the impulse to write the Shulchan Aruch is the dislocation of the Sephardic communities after the expulsion from Spain. And the fact that you didn't have any regional customs anymore. You didn't have any communities. It's like, um, again, this is anachronistic, but it's like when you, people came to America, right? So it, the, you had Landsmannschafts, you know, which was uh, groups, you know, uh, my wife's family's from Marmarush, which is a province of Hungary. So they had the Marmarush or Landsmannschaft, which was, you know, a group of people who came from the same place in Hungary, right? Eventually, what you have in America is just a group of people that get together. There are no local customs, right? Think about your regular synagogue. What are the local, what are the original customs? It all kind of became this one big hodgepodge, right? And if I wanted to know, I have an issue. My synagogue is a German synagogue, officially. It's very hard for me to figure out what that might even mean. Because the amount of people who are knowledgeable of what the German right is today, I think there's five of them. I can tell you their names. I mean, I'm not going to bore you, but I can tell you their names if you want afterwards. Um... So the Shulchan Aruch is extremely sensitive to the fact that he is writing for a community that is essentially homeless. Right? It's a homeless community. There, there's, there's no leadership. There's no, and therefore, when he p- compiles the Shulchan Aruch, he's trying to write a terse, sparse, direct code of law that he writes in his introduction, actually, is so 
terse that you could review it, he says, every 30 days, easily. We, don't, we study Shulchan Aruch much more methodically, but he writes, theoretically, this is something, if you just read the Shulchan Aruch, he could review every month and know everything you need to know. And his methodology, which is extremely controversial, extremely controversial, as he mentions, Tversky mentions, is that he says that in any given question of halacha, I am not, I, I don't make any decisions. I'm not going to make a single decision. All I'm going to do is tally up votes. Whenever we have a question of halacha, there are three rabbis that I'm going to go consult. Maimonides, the Rif Al-Fasi, who's a Moroccan scholar about 100 years before Maimonides, and Rabbeinu Asher, who is a, originally a French scholar who moves to Spain about 100 years after Maimonides. And according to the Shulchan Aruch, I am just going to compile, at, look at any question, look at these three rabbis, and whatever they come up with as a consensus, that's what halacha is going to be. This is the stated purpose of the Shulchan Aruch. Now again, does he do it all the time? Absolutely not. And there are vast areas of halacha that are completely in the Shulchan Aruch that have nothing to do with the Rambam, have nothing to do with the Rif. They're completely irrelevant to that stated purpose. However, that is what he claims he is about to do. Now, there are people that found this offensive or problematic from the very outset in the world of Ashkenaz. Why? We'll start with the first thing. None of them were, uh, were Ashkenaz? Right, not, right, none of their, no, it's right, but none of their rabbis are represented. In, in a sense, the Rush is, but it's a little more problematic than that. The Rush, Rabbeinu Asher, is a Ashkenazic rabbi that moves to Spain. So he is the rabbi of a Sparta community in Spain, I think Toledo, but on the other hand, he is identified as a Sephardic rabbi. At the same time, by the way, most of the times, Rambam and, and Alfasi agree with each other, so whatever the Rush says is irrelevant anyway. But the Ashkenazic tradition is not even underrepresented. It's not represented at all. So that's one problem that Ashkenazim had with, with this, this mode of method of doing things. And in a sense, Ramah comes along to kind of fill that breach. But there are still major, major problems with what Ramah is doing. For example, why is this in any way true? Why is the consensus of three rabbis in any way actually make any sense as far as a methodology at all? Right, we all know that you know, the fact that you have a majority does not say anything about whether it's right or wrong. Most of the times it just tells you that it's wrong, right? I mean, I don't want to be that cynical. Oh, I'm going to be that cynical. But the point is, is that we don't actually think that, that because a majority of three people says something, it actually has any truth value to it, right? As a matter of fact, it's interesting is that already in the Talmud, they're already kind of very conscious of the fact that despite the fact that we follow the majority, that's not necessarily have anything to do with what's true or what's not, right? So on the one hand, the problems you, the objections you would have in Ashkenaz are number one is where are our rabbis represented? Number two is what kind of methodology is this? And number three, and this is what we're going to get to, this is not the way we make decisions, right? Each decision has to be taken, each question has to be taken on its own terms, with its own set of assumptions, its own value balance, right? It's not so simple that we could just make blanket rules. That's not how we as Ashkenazim see halakha functioning, right? Simple codes and simple answers don't deal with the actual applied questions of real life. So to think that you could just write a code like this that will answer all of life's questions, that's exactly the opposite of how we have always done things. And so therefore, the Ramad doesn't make it better, necessarily, by just adding, you know, a few rabbis who spoke French or German or Yiddish, right? 
But in some sense, he exacerbates the problem because he kind of validates the methodology at play here. And if you look here, just um, if you guys saw that um, that question that was yeah, sorry. The, right, the dynamic. There's a, there's a totally different dynamic at play here when you make these hard and fast rules, 100%. Right, right. And remember that, look, the, the, the appeal of making very general life statements is that they're broadly applicable, right? They're broadly available to people. But they, the, what, they, what the harm is is that the specifics kind of, you know, in a specific case, you don't have a, a, a way out. Um, and if you look, actually, that was, if you look there that, that where it says, um, on the, I think the third page, that Shuvot HaRamah. So this is written by, and we mentioned this, this Rav Shalom Shachlan. Now, by the way, to, to, to exacerbate the problem, remember that the Ramah comes from a world that is so suspicious of this as a possibility, right? So he is a student, as we said, of the great Rav Shalom Shachna. Rav Shalom Shachna was this like, mythical figure in Ashkenazic Jewry. He, had, he was the head of the yeshiva in Lublin that produced basically the great rabbis of Ashkenaz of the 15 and 1600s. So like we said, Maharal of Prague studies there, and his brother Rav Chaim Freiburg studies there, and uh, Rav Sal Freiburg studies there, and, um, and the Ramah studies there, and the Yom Shalom Maharal, they all go to this yeshiva. Now what happened when they studied there? So look what it says. I was also taught the practical aspects of halacha by my master and teacher and father, Nagon, rabbi and luminary of the diaspora, Rav Shalom, known as Shachno, of blessed memory. May I be an expiation for his decease. This is not written, by the way, as we said before, this is not written by the Ramah. This is written by Rabbi Yisrael, the son of Rav Shalom Shachno. Why is it in the Chuvot HaRamah? It's in the Chuvot HaRamah because one of the things they used to do is when you had a bunch of things that were written for a group of people, you just shoved everything in there while you were printing it. Generally speaking, you, it's an expression from the Talmud that, you know, that the child should be a kapara for the death of the parent. So this is obviously wouldn't be the Ramah because his father was not, he was his teacher, but not his father. Now, it's weird because sometimes there were people that would say this about their primary teacher, even though it's only supposed to be said about a father. But nonetheless, it's not the Ramah writing here. Who taught many pupils from one end of the earth to the other. We are sustained from his mouth and drink his waters. And by my very life and soul, many times I requested him, together with many other students, to make a psak, meaning a book of halachic writings. And his answer offer out of much piety and humility, for he was humbler than any man on the face of the earth was. I know that if I write such a book, future authorities will rule exclusively as I write, in view of the principle that the law is decided according to the last authority. That's a, a, a concept which is invoked often in this, this time period in Ashkenaz, Hilchata Kibatrai, which means that when you have an argument amongst earlier authorities and later authorities, you always follow the later authorities. The assumption being, of course, later authorities have the, the encompassing knowledge that, you know, I know more about everything in halacha than the Balei Atosvot did, not per se because I'm wiser than the Balei Atosvot, but I have 800 years of books in front of me that they did not have. But I do not wish the people, people to rely upon me. He was referring, for example, to a case where there was a controversy among great rabbis, and he would decide between them or sometimes disagree, but the judge can base his decision only on what is before him. 
Therefore, each person should decide according to his, that particular time as he sees fit. For that reason, too, his rabbi, the Gaon, our teacher, Rabbi Jacob Pollock, Rabbi Yaakov Pollock, also composed no book. Neither did those Gaonim ever copy in their homes even response them that they sent away. Moreover, they believed the writing of the book would be arrogance on their part. So this is an amazing statement of the problematics of writing books, which is that books become dead words on a page, become the final authority in and of themselves. But a stigma probably is a stigma of publishing, right? Right, but but it, it's an asset, but it also it, it, it does fossilize, right? Yeah. It does fossilize. How many times have you had an argument, in a, you see an argument in Beit Midrash, and pointing to a page ends the argument, ends the discussion, right? You can't say what you're saying because I can go like this, right? So, so and that is exactly what Rashom Shachno and he's claiming Rav Yaakov Pollock didn't want to do. They didn't want to fossilize it. They didn't want to have it set in stone like that. That's not what halakha is about, right? Um... And they thought it would be arrogance to even do such a thing. Now, it's also interesting because it assumes that really the only people qualified to have these discussions are the students in the yeshiva. Because it's really, I mean, he is not concerned with the broader audience here, right? Because the broader audience is not even being, doesn't have the ability to even come to the answer, let alone to, you know. So, so yeah, Wendy. I think they don't want to leave a written record. I mean, look what he says. Like we said earlier, when you would write... No, no, it's a general. They don't, we don't want to leave a written record. Written records are inherently problematic. Look, like we said earlier, when you would, you would ask me a question. Can I go to... Whatever. Can I... Uh, 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 Jews only... Uh, Jews are supposed to eat Chinese food on, on Christmas. Can I eat chillin' on, on, uh, on Christmas or is it a, a non-Jewish... Whatever it is. So you would send me that question, right? So what people used to do is the rabbis would write two, two copies. Copy one is sent to the respondent, to the questioner, and copy number two is kept for posterity. They wouldn't keep a second copy for posterity. You may be right, because it's interesting that even the great opponents of this um, are still publishing books afterwards. They're still publishing books afterwards. But I do think that there's something I think, more, more essential at play here, which is that, like, look, they had their canon, Shari Dura and whatever it was. I mean, Shari Dura is the example we keep coming up with today, but whatever else it would be, whatever it is, um, they had their, their, their canon. I think what his point, the specific point here is that I think that they, they just... You know, they, they, they saw halakha as so dynamic that they didn't want to establish their, their authority, per se, as a final imperator as far as... Yeah?
Well, but at that point, right, at that point, you're right, but, but I don't know if, I, I, people didn't own enough books. It was, I mean, books weren't cheap enough to actually own your homes till the 1800s. You don't have people like private libraries till the 1800s um, because, you know, they were still expensive. Okay, they were easier than manuscripts, that's true, but that would mean that, like, you would have a set of shots in the town, you know what I mean, as opposed to just manuscripts or two sets of shots, whatever it is. But even up until the 1700s, 1800s, you would have synagogues or Batemi Drash that didn't even have a full set of shots. So I don't know if it, I mean, you may, I think, I think what you're saying is definitely true today where it takes about one second to publish anything and therefore there's absolutely no quality control whatsoever and that's an editorializing, but, um, but I don't know if it was true then. Right, there's, right, that's not, right, there's, right, there's that other hesitancy as far as, right, and it could, that, right, you still have rabbis today that are, are hesitant to write things down. Now, that also could be, though, one of the things at play there, I think, is that they're not actually writing actual halakha. No. Meaning, they're, meaning, remember that, that the, the, the age of, of, of Ashkenazic writing about halakha is kind of over at that, you know, by the time you get to the mid-1800s, and now becomes all abstractions, Right. So you don't necessarily have the same set of concerns. You may think that like what I'm saying about this text of the Talmud is not necessarily the authoritative view. It has much less real-world tangible significance, though, than, you know, this is what the law should be and will be forever. Yeah. It, it did exist in a much more minimized form, meaning you had your canon and your canonical texts that were always taken into account. You know what I mean? It, 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 I'll put it this way. There was less of a fear amongst the rabbis or the rabbinic elite then to not say something against one of their contemporaries or someone who immediately preceded them. So whereas Tosfot are clearly still important, you know what I mean? What someone a generation ago is not so important. Um, and you see here and here, he's trying to leave it open for his students. I mean, it's another amazing point here, right? The students are the ones that are asking, please write this down, and he's kind of saying to them, this is not how I teach you. This is not how we learn. Right? We don't learn in that way. Yeah, I, th that's true. And, and if anyone wants, there's a, a very, very good book, which I have a copy of somewhere here, by Edward Fram about Jewish life in Poland from 1550 to 1650. Excellent, excellent book, which a lot of those issues are kind of fleshed out. But anyway, just because for time's sake, um, you, you see here that, that Elchan Reiner, and, and again, Elchan Reiner is a, a, a phenomenal scholar in Israel who's written a ton about this. A lot of what I've got is, you know, called from Reiner's work. So he did all the translations here. So he just po made the point in the next source about, you know, how the, the knowledge was disseminated, right? You had the Mordechai, which is this very important halachic text, which we tack on the back of the Gemara. Um, each town had its own version. I mentioned, right, I mentioned earlier, um, one of the really interesting cases, studies of this, if you just go to any farm store, there was a very, very famous work by the Ra'avad, the same Ra'avad we saw earlier called Torah Habayi. Torah Habayi was his laws of, you know, mikvah and whatever. And so... Recently, in the last 50 years or so, people have tried to come out with an authoritative, authentic Torah Habayit, which is actually almost impossible because the Torah Habayit is a work that literally depended on what town you lived in. Okay, everyone had a different version. 
So if you're going to go and get seven manuscripts, they are literally completely different because it just mattered which town you lived in. If I lived in this town, I had this version, this town, that version. And you'll see that if they, as they publish it, each one is identified by the town that it came from. So to come up with an authoritative text, if you don't have the autograph of the author, is literally almost impossible because that's how knowledge was disseminated. Now, comes along Rama and says, this has got to end because this is making knowledge impossible and this is causing total anarchy, right? There's no rhyme and reason. Nothing makes any sense. You look at these books and you can't even figure out what they're talking about. So if you hear, he says here in the introduction to Torah Chata, which is on the next page, he said, I bless the Lord who has guided me. My conscience admonishes me at night to write a book on Isser Veheter, which is permitted and not permitted, on the laws set forth in Shari Dura, insofar as that book is widespread in everyone's hands, presenting a stumbling block for them. For the Gaon, the author of Shari Dura, composed it in his own generation, great and wise men, and the brevity with which he wrote sufficed for them. And he wrote in his book only those things that he considered innovations, or things necessary for that generation. But now, owing to the sins of these last generations, his words have become obscure and incomprehensible, as though they had never been. And for that reason, the later authorities of blessed memory rose up and wrote comments on it in their glosses so as to instruct the generations how to conduct themselves, even though, in so doing, the writings clashed with one another. One says this, another says that. One prohibits, one permits, although they were all given by one shepherd. At any rate, whoever has not the power to taste their sweet but largely obscure words cannot reach conclusions from these numerous glosses. Accordingly, these books have fallen into the hands of many people, small and great, who have interpreted and explained them in different ways. Time comes to an end, but their words are endless, for they have composed for that book commentaries and appendices, and many students have jumped up and attributed nonsensical things to it. Every man did as he pleased in this book, and who shall prevent him? Thereafter, these books and words have been printed, and whoever sees them believes they were all uttered at Sinai. And the effort of scholars who meant well to abbreviate to explain has caused harm. Therefore, have I, Moses, seen that it would be good to establish the proper order of all the laws of Isser that are in the Shari Dura, and to commit them to writing in a brief way without lengthy casuistry, in a matter easily comprehensible to every man, be he small or great. Now, what's the problem with this? Well, one is the definition of chutzpah, right? Although, you know, what, that's one of the interesting things, right? Anytime you're going to write anything of any significance, you could say it's the definition of chutzpah. Yeah? It will apply to anybody. Or... Right, or even more, but be he small or great. What's he doing? He's taking the knowledge base. At, right, the reason why it is so deliberately obscure is because it is a localized knowledge for a very spe special, specialized audience, right? So if I live in that locale where I have my own version of this book and we teach it in our own way, so therefore I understand what it's saying. He is trying to democratize it, right? Be he small or great. Look, print books are being printed. They're more readily available. People are getting confused. So therefore, I'm going to write my book in a way that the small or the great are able to understand it. It is the end of a certain way of life and a certain way of doing things, right? We're not concerned with the small elite audience anymore. We're concerned with a much broader audience. We don't want to do things the way we did them before, but we're going to do them this way. I'm not even concerned of maintaining the original words of the Shari Dur because even those are obscure. And I'm going to write in a way that becomes more comprehensible and easier to understand for everyone. There's a couple of other interesting things that Ramah does in Torah Chatat which become very, very controversial. For example, a lot of the Torah Chatat 
And if anyone has ever studied Ashkenazic halacha, you know this is like a bit of a frustration. But as Ashkenazic halacha progresses from the times of the Talmud through, say, the years 1000 to 1500, a lot of local customs and especially a lot of local stringencies get added onto the corpus of what it means to be a practicing Ashkenazic Jew. Ramah in Torah Chatat gets rid of a lot of that and goes back to the foundations of the earliest rabbis, Tosvot, Rashi, etc. Now, it makes a easier or perhaps even a more you know, broadly applicable halacha. What it does, though, is it of the tradition of ah, this is how we did it, right? This is the way we've always done it. Another thing, which I didn't have in the English, but you could look in the Hebrew, is something really fascinating. He likes to invoke categories as a means of leniency. I'll give you two examples that he, he himself quotes. This is here. It's on this, in this, this where it says introduction to Torah Chata. If you look in the Rashi script on the bottom page, it says Hinei et Natsel. But I'm just going to, I'm just going to briefly mention it. He says that sometimes I write that in a case of, now I'll translate all these in a minute. Hafsed Maruba, Ani Bedavar Chashuv, or Lechavod Shabbat, I am lenient. Meaning, Ramah will say that even though generally we follow A, if it's a case where you're going to have a tremendous financial loss or it is a poor person, it's not a tremendous financial loss, but for this specific poor person, they are going to be in a very dire straits if I am strict. Or it's close to Shabbat and there are no other options available. Right? Generally speaking, if it was a Tuesday afternoon and you could find another chicken, okay, so then we would be strict. But if it's Friday afternoon, 20 minutes before Shabbos, we can't be strict. So the Ramah writes, I will invoke these categories as a means of leniency. Now, what's interesting is he has to justify why he does so. Because what he will do is invoke these categories to be lenient against the traditional Ashkenazic understanding. Okay? So he, what he's doing is really making a much broader, broad, more, more broadly applicable, more matim, uh, more easily applicable code of halacha. But what it does is kind of scrapes away one layer after another of this elite Ashkenazic culture that's been building up for the last two or three hundred years. As a matter of fact, it's an interesting thing that he says, which has been in and of itself an interesting discussion. He writes, and this is bothering me about this later, but he writes that the only time you can invoke categories like Hefzid Maruba, a big, a, a tremendous financial loss, or it's different, the halakha is different for a poor person and before Shabbat. He says the only time where you can invoke those categories, right, like we, the law should be A, but because it's a tremendous financial loss, we'll allow you to do B. So he says the only time we allow you to do that is where really we think that the leniency is the correct interpretation. However, because of deference or to custom, we're going to be strict. So those cases where we're really convinced that, strictly speaking, the leniency is the right way to go, but look, you know, we have this body of customs that built up, so therefore that's why we're strict. So he says those are the only times where you could be lenient in such a case. We waive the local custom in a case where we really believe in the leniency, but, you know, poor people, what are they going to do, right? It's an interesting statement that he makes, but it's also important because this is a, an operating principle that he has, and a lot of people are very bothered by this. Not because they disagree with him that that's really what the halakha ideally should be, 
But they say, we have communities of people who have not practiced the halacha like this for hundreds of years. And now you're coming along with one broad swoop and saying to them, well, whatever you've been doing for the last 200 years, eh, don't worry about it anymore. Not important. Whatever. So what the Ramah is doing with this work, and this is 10 years before he writes his work, on the, or he publishes his work on the Shulchan Aruch, is he is really just kind of undoing this entire rabbinic culture that's built up in Ashkenaz for the last two, three hundred years. Shari Dura is in the 1300s, and he's writing this in the middle of the 1500s. Yeah? What drove the stringency, the, the, the propulsion towards more and more Yisurim and Menadrim and I mean, I'm, that's a, I, I'm not entirely sure. Usually what the people write about as far as the stringencies in the modern period, there's a Benny Brown, who's an a, a academic in Israel, has a great article, though exceptionally long, um, called Five Versions of Chumrah of Stringency in the Modern Period, mm-hmm. for whatever reasons they have. Um, a lot of them were textual. A lot of them were corrupted texts that people had. A lot of them were folk customs. A lot of it was a specific nuance of an interpretation, maybe of a corrupted text in the Shari Dura. You know, there's a million reasons why they were strict. So, so it's, it's interesting that you mention that. When I studied these laws as a smicha student, so I wasn't trained to say, well, because this is the custom in this locale, we should do this. It became very difficult to read any of these works because I couldn't figure out why they were doing this. You know? Um, anyway, but, but that's, that's how he... Yeah, go ahead. It could be referring to certain... Uh, to Black Death could be referring to the fact that a lot of the, you know, the, the, a lot of the people have, you know, have died out. The rabbinic, some rabbis in some communities have died out. That was seen as, a, you know, due to the sinfulness of the generation. Could be what he's referring to. Yeah. When he was No, no, he will invoke a lot of leniencies. I mean, one of the things that's very important. Uh, I mean, did he get rid of the leniencies? I, I think at times, yeah, definitely did. Um, but, I mean, the true vote are interesting because of the leniencies that he relies on. I mean, the famous example that, uh, is there was a, a, a girl who was an orphan and her uncle promised to give her a large dowry. And at the last minute, he pulled back and didn't want, he only gave two thirds of the dowry he agreed to. And the husband, the, the husband didn't want to get married. And this is all on a Friday afternoon, right before Shabbos. They're arguing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And eventually, he allows them to get married an hour and a half into Shabbos. So the question comes up, how could you possibly allow her to get married an hour and a half in the Shabbos when it seems that the Gemara in Masech is explicitly against that? So that, if you look in Edward Frame's book, if you want a photocopy for you afterwards, that's a phenomenal discussion there because it comes up again a generation later. Um, but, um, but I think he does hold on to a lot. I mean, he does hold on to a lot of the stringencies. If you look in your day, he does hold on to a lot of the stringencies. Um, but he's definitely willing to get rid of a lot of them, which is, you know, especially, and, and, and again, you know, create some sort of pan Ashkenazic um, version of the world. If you look in that Rav Chaim ben Metzal Friedberg, so. Um, the ver- the, the, I have, we have here just one paragraph um, translated um, and he says here just as a person likes only the food th- this is his, 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 his fighting against 
against the Torah Chata, but while he's fighting against the Torah Chata, he'll throw in all of the Ramah's works also, and the Shulchan Aruch, meaning he has no, no time or patience for any of it. He thinks the entire project is, is just totally fatally flawed from the outset. So here he writes, just as a person likes only the food that he prepares for himself in accordance with his own appetite and taste, not wishing at all to be a guest at another person's table, thus he does not like another person's rulings unless he agrees with that person. All the more does he not wish to be dependent upon the books of other authors, who he does not trust, just as a person likes only the food that he prepares for himself in accordance to his own appetite and taste, and does not aspire to be a guest at their prepared table. That's a very clever play on words, right? But he's saying effectively, look, we are guests at the table of food that we don't like. Right? The Shulchan Aruch is just this disgusting food that we don't like. And for that reason, the ancients refrained from writing any special book to lay down custom and halacha to the general public. It is therefore quite surprising that Ramoses has written a special book, sorry, and ignored the things that I've written about. And if you look in the Hebrew, which I handed out, I mean, again, this, uh, hopefully in the next little while I'll translate the whole thing. It's very long. I mean, his language is very, very harsh and very, very indicting. And he says things like... Um, Somebody mentioned this. If you put, look on page 94, he says, He says, these books encourage, first and foremost, laziness. You don't actually know anything. Man, that's actually a pretty valid point. Right? When you have a book that is so accessible and so easy and so clear it really does discourage you from actually investigating anything in any, in any great depth. So the service maybe to the layperson is a disservice to the, to the rabbi. And it does lead to an exceptionally superficial version of what halakha should be. That's one of his arguments. His other argument is that, and he says this, well, who, people, the Ramah may be right about a lot of things, but when you go and tell people who have lived their lives a certain way that everything that they thought was... A is really B. So sometimes they'll say, oh, thank God you told me that. And sometimes they'll say, what kind of rabbi is this? Give me an example, just a brief example. I am a rabbi. And I am utterly convinced, 100%, that if a person wants to take a dishwasher and put meat dishes and milk dishes in at the exact same time, there is no problem whatsoever. And I can give you citations of people who say this. And when I tell people this, most of the people look at me like, what kind of rabbi is this? Right, what kind of rabbi would actually say something like that? And as many proofs, I could bring you a thousand proofs that I'm right, and I think I'm 100% right, but no one's, they're not going to listen to me because this is not the way that we have done things. Even my wife doesn't listen to me. So I, <laughs> I, I have one dishwasher and, and two hands. But the, and the, so, <laughs> the, but the point is, is that, is that and, and he says this is part of the problem of it also, meaning there's a lack of trust that a person will have in someone who basically says that everything we've done until now, everything that we've thought, everything that we've learned from our great rabbis and our great teachers is completely gone by the wayside. And he goes on and on. I mean, it's a, it's a phenomenal work. Um, and he, he even makes a great analogy, analogy which, is, which is interesting. And this actually is pretty... Think about it, actually. In our day and age, it's a great analogy. If you look in page 95, we're in hay. I'm sorry it's so small, but it's the only way I get it on the page. He says, He says that their attempt to simplify everything led to the same problems... Um, of the, 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 the wise men of, of medicine. Ki harofim hakadmonim, 
the earlier doctors, Lerov Bikiyotam, with their great expertise, Bechokma and wisdom, Hai, Lo Yukotvin, Ratskuladas of Imashor Shim, Viadu Betovli, Kachmehem Bemido Mishkal, Viminion, Utakimim Rufur, Rufiazman, Rufitavachola. Said, you know, the old doctors, they knew, you know, their general principles. Of ha- and then, you know, if you have 103 fever, I give you this much horseradish. If you have 105 fever, I give you this much horseradish, right? They didn't write it down. It was, a base, it was an expertise, right? It's, I know the general principle, and my real life expertise has taught me that this is how I do it. They wanted to publicize this because of the net necessity, right? More people were getting sick, more people were alive in the world. They started to write down the actual cures. They didn't write it exactly, you know, because you can't teach all that expertise in writing. But what happened? The wisdom actually decreased. Why? Because when you don't have the real life experience and you just have the Roche Prakim, you just have the general thing, so you don't actually know more about medicine, you just know a little bit, which becomes more dangerous. I mean, let's think about how often any of us are on WebMD and have self-diagnosed ourselves as imminently dying, you know, from a, from a hangnail, right? Well, it's good. My food's going to infected, then the gangrene's going to set in, I've got to go to the emergency room right now. And the point is, is that in, in some sense, it's not a boon to medicine, because sometimes you do need trained specialists, people who have a lifetime of training in the field and have the ability to kind of balance things. And he says this is effectively exactly what Rama has done in trying to democratize knowledge as such. Yeah. I think he would have the same argument against the Rambam. I think he would. He has the same argument against the Shulchan Aruch here. He has no, pl- he has no, pl- he has no place for Shulchan Aruch either. Um, I think he would like the great Ashkenazic way where you write chapter heads and allow the, the process of education, knowledge, to fill in everything else. I, mean, I think that's the world that he wants. To, so I don't know. The Rush maybe is a little bit better. Some of the other ones are a little bit better because they're not writing definitive codes. This is the final word. Do I think he would have any tolerance to the Rambam? Absolutely not. Many Ashkenazic rabbis had no tolerance to the Rambam either for that exact reason. Now, as time went by, they could tolerate it a little bit more because it is now... I mean, remember, one of the ironies of the Rambam and the Shulchan Aruch is the fact that it's published with commentaries, right? The thing that's supposed to be the final word is never the final word, right? So, in the 100, 200, 300 years since then, you can kind of tolerate it a little bit more because the very text itself has the disagreement on it. So, you can tolerate it a little bit more, but he's now talking about a Shulchan Aruch and Ramad that's not published with all the commentaries because there are no commentaries yet. Right, he's living at the time when it's actually published. Remember, the guys, that's a very important point. The commentaries soften the critique a lot because it reintroduces all of the dissenting opinions back into the, into the question, right? Um, and so this is some, these are some of the, the major oppositions um, that you would have against the Ramah. Now, in the end, of course, the Ramah wins the day, right? That's how we learn halakha. This is how, what we do, like we said earlier. The Ramah... Again, this is totally anachronistic. But of rabbis that came from quote-unquote Ashkenazic lands, without, except Rashi, I think the Ramah is the most studied on a daily basis. I mean, I don't think there's anyone who's even close because anyone who opens a Shulchan Aruch on any given day is studying the words of the Ramah. And I think that that's probably of the texts that Jews study, one of the, if not the most, common text. As a Smicha student, I, just, I, know, I know I spent very little time with Chumash in front of me. 
But I spent a lot of time with the Shulchan Aruch in front of me. So the other question um, is, who is the audience? So it's one thing that you write this book and that you expand the boundaries of knowledge and that you make it you know, democratic and you realize, by the way, perhaps the, the reality of the printing press, right? That the, we, we can't kind of control who has these words anymore, right? We can't control who gets the knowledge anymore, right? This is a world that's rapidly changing. Right, the Ramah is uniquely situated to a world where buying books is the way you get knowledge. Um, so who is the intended audience? So this is an amazing thing. So if you turn to the second to last page, um, you'll see something really fascinating. So this is a, a phenomenal article, which is, uh, I would dare say, underread. Uh, if you, the, the, the passage from Moshe Habertal, just if you're interested, is from Yam Shlomo. Yam Shlomo is a commentary on the Talmud by Rabbi Shlomo Luria, and the English is right afterwards. Rabbi Shlomo Luria also is very against this process of codification, similar, although not exactly similar, to some of the critiques that we've seen beforehand. The interesting thing about Yam Shlomo is that he fellow student with Ramah in the yeshiva of Rav Shalom Shachno, he is the cousin of the Ramah as well, meaning these are people who are the same age, imagine your first cousin you grew up with, who still finds this entire project very distasteful and very objectionable. So the question is, of course, yeah? hundred percent. No, 100%, 100%, Oh, yeah, 100%. And again, there's, they're, 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 they're right, in a sense. You know, let's be honest here. Most questions that my congregants ask me, or my students ask me, they could just do a Google search, right, and find that answer, right? I mean, you know, so, I mean, look, it's an interesting question in general. Like, and, and by the way, this is part of the thing. Like, you, the rabbinate has to adapt to the sophistication, the technological advances that the that the that the uh, the parishioners have. I mean, that's again, the Ramah is ahead of the curve here, because he already he he hooks into this project of Shulchan Aruch early, you know, knowing full well that or not knowing full well, but at least anticipating that the world is different, right? The world has changed. Um, so he's one of the first ones, and that to a certain degree, you know, is why when I would ask you know anyone here who is Rav Chaim Bemitzal of Friedberg up before today, no one knew. But I'm saying if I ask you who's Moses Israelis, a lot of you would know, right? We know that name. It's on the, the, you go to Poland, it's on the trip, right? You go to the Ramah Shul, you go to the Ramah's Kever, right? It's all part of the trip, right? This is, and, 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 he, you know, and again, it's, it's, a, it's a great lesson, right? The ones that kind of adapt and know how to use the technology and know how to, you know, have nuances of the technology, those are the ones ultimately that, you know, leave the lasting record a lot of the time. Um, so the question, of course, is, so who's the intended audience, right? We said earlier, it, it does, it, that's one thing he doesn't say. He says, Medinot Elu, these places, these lands. What does that mean? If I were to say uh, in Shul, you know, uh, around here, we, our custom is blank. What does that mean? The east side, Manhattan, Teaneck also, five towns, Lakewood. I mean, what does that mean, right? Brooklyn, like, what, what, is it, what does this mean? So if you look here, this Joseph Davis wrote this excellent article. He says like this, in another passage in the introduction to his commentary to the Shulchan Aruch, Israelis offered another definition of his limited audience, a geographical definition. So the first definition the Ramah gives is perhaps a genetic one. We are the, unclear if he really means this literally, the children of the Baal Tosva. We are the, the descendants. So the first version of who the Ramah's audience is, is anyone who can 
prove their genealogy going back to Rashi, Tosfot, etc. But he says like this, whereas the great author, and this is that last page you have, the introduction of the Ramah, this page, this is just an abbreviated version of it. Whereas the great author of the Beit Yosef and the Shulchan Aruch left after himself no room for any addition except to gather words of the most recent rabbis and to set down the minhagim that are customary in these lands, the Therefore, I have come after him to spread a tablecloth on the laden table that he wrote, upon which will be every ripe fruit and every delicacy that is beloved of men. For without this, the table which he has laid before the Lord is not ready for the men of these lands, b'nei adam asher elu, for in the majority of, these cust- of the customs of these lands, we do not follow his opinions. It's interesting, the Ramah actually calls his work on the Shulchan Aruch the Mapa. A Mapa is a tablecloth. So he's saying the table is set, all I'm doing is putting a tablecloth so that it's finally ready. Right? So he's saying, look, you know, the Shulchan Aruch is a wonderful book, but that's not what we do here. So the question comes up, who are we and what is here? Right? It's not, and we said earlier, it, not entirely clear what that means. There were still unique and discrete communities dotting throughout the European landscape. Where exactly are Israelis' lands, Medina Orelu? Not surprisingly, the matter was disputed after Israelis' death. The debate centered on the question of whether these lands included the land of Germany. Were the Jews of Poland and Germany members of one polity with shared customs and a shared interpretation of Jewish law, or did they form two separate groups? The first readers to address this question were Israelis' Krakow publisher, Isaac of Prosnitz, and his proofreader and editor, Samuel ben Isaac the Martyr Bohm. The title pages of the various Krakow editions of Shulchan Aruch, 1570, 1577, 1583, and so on, read. Shulchan Aruch, written by Rav Yosef Karo, with many comments by Moses Israelis, and a guide to the customs of Poland, Russia, Lithuania, Bohemia, Moravia, and Germany. Now, no small amount of irony here, right? That it's the, it's the publisher that creates Ashkenazic Jewry, right? It's not the great rabbi, it's not the great gaon, it's not someone who sat, it's the person who runs the printing press. He is the one in charge of creating who is Ashkenazic and who is not, right? Because, and, and by the way, in subsequent editions of Shulchan Aruch, when they wanted to sell one in Austria, they wrote Austria also. When they wanted to sell, wherever, wherever you want to sell, just put, put it on the title page. And this was one of the objections that people had to it, in addition to the other objections, which is, what, what are you doing here? Look in, he says, Rechaim, this is the same Rechaim Friedberg, who's, you know, I mean, he's, he's apoplectic about this. There is a great need to assert the differences between the customs of the Jews of Germany, B'nai Ashkenaz, and those of the land of Poland. Rabbi Aristotle himself, in his introduction to Torah Dechata, did not mention the customs of Germany at all, but only those of his own land. And by the way, he's probably right. He's probably right. Remember, we saw that in the Shulchan Aruch, he distinguishes between Medinot Elu and Ashkenaz, right? He makes a distinction. There's, where we, there's us, and then there's Ashkenaz. So he's probably correct that the Ramah himself wasn't necessarily writing for a German audience. The introduction of the proofreader, however, mentioned explicitly Poland, the Ukraine, Bohemia, Moravia, and he extended the borders even further and wrote, perhaps every place where German, Lashon Ashkenaz, is spoken by Jews. One may see that he expressed uncertainty whether a book applies to German Jews or not. So the printer added that on his own and mentioned Germany as well as on the title page so that it would increase his sales in all of those lands because buyers always look at the beginning of the book. And it's an interesting little historical side note, right, that, you know, maybe the creation of Ashkenazic Jewry as we know it is entirely a question of book sales, 
you know, um, and that, you know, what we take for granted, you know, oh, this is what we do is because, you know, a publisher in the 1500s was trying to expand his audience. Yeah. It seems that he's using it to refer to Germany. Um, if you look in the first page, just trying to if you look in the first page, right? Um, well, actually, here, right, here, here he actually says, calls himself B'nai Ashkenaz. So here, that's why it's a little bit unclear. Most of the time, he said, look, here he says, right, if you look at the Shulchan Aruch, he says here, V'anu B'nai Ashkenaz lo So there he actually is referring to himself as B'nai Ashkenaz, but there are other times throughout the Ramah's work where, and that's why it's a little bit unclear, but other times it seems to be that he's distinguishing Ashkenaz from everyone else. I mean, that's where the, the kind of the, the tension and the rub is. Um, but it became an open question. It, what's interesting is in the generation after this, about the, by, the, by the early 1600s to the mid-1600s already, the students of the Ramah, we mentioned in the beginning, the Ramah sets up a yeshiva, and he has these students to become illustrious rabbis. Uh, the people who write the Lavush, and the, the people who write the great commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch, in their introductions to the Shulchan Aruch, will still be constantly expanding the borders. So they themselves are part of this process, but this is a, it's a kind of different impulse, not per se to drive up sales, but to kind of puff up their chest and assert greater influence on the part of their teacher and a great importance on the part of their teacher, right? So we'll say that our teacher was the rabbi for blah, blah, blah. You know, my Rebbe is the greatest Rebbe because he had 50,000 students or 100,000 followers, whatever it is. So you look in the introduction to the commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch written by the students of the Ramah, they also are constantly expanding the borders of the sphere of influence. Um, I think it's, okay, in summation, I, it's really, I think, an, a particularly interesting question, um, this question about the publication of books and what they mean, and specifically this one, because what you see here is w several of the important factors that we still have to think about today that are at work. What defines a community? What defines a polity? How much, what, who do we want to reach? How, how much do we want knowledge to be democratic? What are the, the problems of simplifying? And what are the benefits or problems of leaving things a little bit obscure? How does the market economy play into our religious lives? And what does it mean to kind of be ahead of the technological curve um, as far as adaptation of your religious life to these new circumstances. So what's interesting is, again, I mentioned in the beginning, um, a lot of these questions are still relevant. A lot of the questions are no longer relevant. Um, what happens in the 1600s is, and the 1700s especially, is first of all, the community, the kila, the vad ha'arba aratzot, dissolves. So first Jews become citizens, or become back to being, you know, permitted to live in, European lands because they're given permission by the state. And then, by the time of the Enlightenment, they are citizens of the state. And when you're a citizen of the state, you don't have those communal pressures anymore. You don't have that kind of communal autonomy anymore. And your practice is very, very little constrained by rabbis, rabbinical courts, etc. Um, but some of the issues come up um, again. So I'll just mention my friend's work, which I started out with. Um, one of the really interesting chapters in the history of Jewish publishing is actually the publishing of the commentary of the Vilna Gaon on the Shulchan Aruch. Um, and it, w uh, you can read his book to 
to see why he thinks that the Vilna Gaon is specifically important. But one of the great questions that comes up is the following. The Vilna Gaon, who is considered, you know, the greatest rabbi since at least Maimonides, if not Rabbi Akiva, by his students, writes a commentary on the Shulchan Aruch. What the purpose of this commentary is, is not entirely clear. Is it there to strengthen the Shulchan Aruch, or is it there to kind of undo the Shulchan Aruch? That, historians will argue. Some will say that it's there to strengthen the Shulchan Aruch because what it does is provide direct citations in the Talmud for every law that is in the Shulchan Aruch. Others will say that it undoes the project of the Shulchan Aruch because the only reason why the Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah have any validity is because of the fact that I can give you a direct citation from the Talmud. And therefore, if it doesn't have the authority of the Talmud behind it, it is an irrelevant law. This is something that scholars debate to this day. It's a very hot debate, actually, today. But one of the interesting questions in the publication of the Shulchan Aruch there is as follows. If you look at a page of the Shulchan Aruch, we have lots and lots of commentaries surrounding it, right? The stated goal of having one easy code, just read it once a month, becomes impossible to think of reading these huge, heavy volumes once a month, right? because of the fact that we have all these commentaries from the 16 and 1700s. And what happens with the commentaries is it kind of undoes the project, but it makes it more amenable and more to people to actually learn it because it doesn't seem as extreme and as forced. The students of the Vilna Gaon, when they published the Shulchan Aruch, took out all of the commentaries except for his. The first publication of the Shulchan Aruch of the students of the Gaon got rid of every commentary from the 16 and 1700s and only put his in. Why? Because everyone besides him is irrelevant. It's a nice idea. It's, you know, okay, you want to talk like this, whatever it is. That's not actual halakha. It's not actually authoritative. Only we are authoritative. And it's only in the second generation when they realize that they're basically undoing everything. People are going crazy. Do they republish it with all the other commentaries and just a little byline of the Vilna Gaon on the bottom? But this just proves that the con- you know, continuous publication of books, how you publish them, what they look like, what you put in, what you exclude, this is all part of the questions of who we are, what's authority, right? who's important, who's not important, what we... I'll give you one other great example. There is a, a, a recently published version of the Shulchan Aruch that's called Shulchan Aruch im Perushei Chachmei Svarar, or Chachmei Eidot HaMizrach, which takes out the regular commentaries of the Shulchan Aruch, the Shach, the Taz, Magen Avraham, who are all Ashkenazic, and replaces them with Svartic commentaries. Now, why is this book being published in 2012? Because in 2012, and this is a bigger story, Sephardic scholars want to assert their supremacy over their Ashkenazi counterparts, especially in the land of Israel. Sephardic scholars have felt that their, the, the Ashkenazic rabbinic establishment has had their foot on the Sephardic rabbi's throat for the last 70 years. And it's only now that they're kind of able to reassert themselves in a very strident and assertive way. So what do you do? You publish a Shulchan Aruch that ignores all the great Ashkenazic commentaries, replaces it with great Sephardic commentaries to say what? We don't think you people are relevant at all anymore. Don't tell us what to do. We have our own traditions that you people have suppressed. 
So when the publishing houses are in Vienna or in Berlin or in Munkach, you can publish what you want. But we have our own publishing houses now, and we publish what we want. And so therefore, the story of the publication of books is much more than about just, you know, can I, how much salt do I have to use to salt this piece of meat? But the politics and the questions of who has authority, what is authority, who's involved, are all intertwined here. And it's not only about, you know, at the advent of the printing press, but I think it continues to this day and age. I think it's uh, a vitally important subject, even though I know on the foot of it, if I were to tell you I'm going to speak for two and a half hours about the printing of a gloss and a shohar, your eyes would rightfully roll over. But I do think it's a vitally important topic, and I think it's one that continues to have relevance even to this day and age. So it seems to me that the answer to, the, to your title here it hasn't, it, there's no end, that it's, it's continuing, that even in spite of the fact that you, you know, you do have some things that homogenize it, it doesn't really accomplish that. Right, exactly. I think the attempts to make it homogenous don't work, but I do think that the questions of authority that come with every subsequent publication, every subsequent change of the, look, the way the page looks, again, th- that you have the, the English next to the Hebrew means, right, that we want you to read an English speaker to know what this Talmud is saying. You know, I don't know if you're right. I will say that that is personally why I prefer the Mishnah Brewer, the Aruch HaShulchan, though. I was going to mention that, but it's like too much for Well, now you mentioned But I, I've always preferred the Mishnah Brewer for that exact reason, because it maintains the text of Shulchan Aruch. So at least on the page, you could see what is being responded to. Yeah. Right. I, I will say the following. I, when people ask me what minhag this shul follows, I almost always say minhag art scroll. Um, now, will art scroll be supplanted by something? Of course it will, because that's the... That's the right, no, no, no. The, right, right, right. Look. The, yeah, in America, we follow... If you don't go to a Chabad shul, predominantly you follow minhag art scroll. I mean, that's just the reality. Um, now, there's now Corin, but I, I, I... Maybe it'll be... I, I don't... I, you know, you, you own the art school Sidurim and they're in good shape. So, you know, why would you buy, you know? It's only a few shuls that are, right, they're well bound. I mean, that's another interesting thing to think about, right? You, to justify the purchase, you have to be so ideologically invested in getting rid of art scroll because of how well... Right, look here. Jerisha didn't throw them out. Why? Because they're good books, right? They have this mincha in them. Right, right. No, no, right. I'm saying, right. In Orthodox schools, they follow me. But I would say, I, I think, I mean, you see it, you see it, right. In Orthodox, you're right. It's a valid point. But in Orthodox schools, I think, effectively, that's, that's where we are. And, right, and, by the, and again, I don't know how it's going to creep in, but even in non-Orthodox settings, they're using the art school Gemaras, right? They're going to use the art school Midrash, because that's what's available. They'll use the art school Yushalmi, right? Eventually, that's what's going to be available. You know, and, 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 and if, by the way, if they can publish their Sidurim, because they have a bigger audience... And it's going to be 20 bucks for an art school sitter and $35 for a Corinth sitter. You need a very wealthy, ideologically invested shul to make that decision. And it goes on and on and on. Anyway, thank you very much.